Last week we finished up Isaiah 53. There is one more comment I would like to make on the last verse in Isaiah 53. Everybody wants to turn to that. The last part of the last verse says, Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice it doesn't say that he bore the sins of all, but he bore the sins of many. Remember, he became a guilt offering for us because God has uh, laid on him our guilt. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace uh, was laid on him. He received what we deserve. Now, he only did that for the elect. He did not do that for all men everywhere. He did that for the elect of all the ages. And I just want to say, you'll be attacked for this doctrine that's taught here called limited atonement. I just want to make a very brief couple of statements on this where he says, yet at the end of chapter 53, he bore the sins of many. Okay? We all know the acronym FLOWER for Calvinist, right? What flower is that? Tulip. Tulip. Tulip, yes. And what what do the uh, T-U-L-I-P, what do they stand for? No, total depravity. What does the U stand for? Okay. Uh, and the L? Limited atonement. Limited atonement. And the I? And the P? Okay. And so we're right in the middle of TULIP. The uh, L for limited atonement. And um, let's start over here with Delaney, if you would look up for us Romans, excuse me, John 10, 11 and 26. Now, limited atonement or particular redemption, as it has been called, is probably a better term, is, I think, clearly taught in the Scriptures. And... One of the places that it's taught is what we just read in Isaiah 53. He bore the sin of many. And it doesn't say all. And okay, John 10 verse 11. What does that say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. All right, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. All right, now verse 26. And then Jesus looks at the religious leaders of uh, the Jews and he says, you're not my sheep. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he talks to them. He says, you are not of my sheep. So Jesus himself says that he did not lay his life down for everyone. If you're not one of his sheep, he did not lay his life down for you. 
Um, so it's not a shotgun approach, so to speak, where Jesus dies for everybody and then hopes that somehow some people are going to believe. Jesus knew exactly who he was dying for. And he did not leave anything to chance. It, it, there would be a, be a chance that nobody would believe and he would lay his now, life down for nothing. But um, that is not left up in the air. He died for the elect. He died for nobody else, not in a saving way anyway. They may get a benefit or two, but they're not going to get any benefit of salvation. All right, everybody understand limited atonement. Charles? Um, Jesus himself echoes those same words in Matthew 26, 28, which we use in our communion liturgy where he refers to the symbolism of the wine. He said, um, it says, let's see. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Many. Not everyone, not all, but many. Okay. There are some passages in the scripture that seem to teach that he died for all, and I guess the most famous one is 1 John chapter 2. Um, but you have to read the context of that. And there's many other explanations for 2 2, 1 John 2 2. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean for any and every person, that means for all groups of people. It, it, and if you look in the context, of, it would you it would, you'd have a hard time saying that he died for every man that ever lived. See, if Jesus atones for your sins, and then you go to hell and you pay for them again, that's that's not justice. Your sins would be atoned for twice, or at least more than once. Well, even in the verse, it's quoted probably as much as. Any other, any other verse in the Bible uh, that Christ died <clears throat> for all that, that would believe in Him. If they don't, if you don't believe, it don't matter. You know, it's not for everybody. Yeah. And the number of God so loved the world. Yeah. Call me old-fashioned, but I like limited atonement better than limited redemption. Particular redemption. Yeah. Oh, oh I thought you said limited. Redemption. No, particular redemption. Yeah, then you got too many P's. <laughs> to rename the two of them. That's right. <laughs> you got to find another flower. Yeah. Tulips are really limited anyway. I mean, it's limited itself. Yeah. The, well, uh, is, sin, is sin totally atoned for by those that go to hell? <laughs> Could you say it? No, they'll almost twice, so it's never atoned for. Yeah, uh, G, um, in First Samuel, I believe it is, or either it's in Second. I mean, in, um, let me think for just a second. Second Chronicles, uh, talking about he's talking about the house of Eli, the author Moses, I guess. No, um, Samuel. He says of uh, the house of Eli, your sins will never be atoned for. So even though they are under God's wrath, 
suffering in hell forever. They don't repent. I mean, they just get worse and worse and worse. Anything else? Okay, it's important for us to learn theology. All right, that's going to bring us to chapter 24, verses 1, excuse me, 54, yes, 54. And I'm going to randomly pick people now, and uh, so everybody will be on the alert. Dana, you look like a good one. First three verses. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Okay. <clears throat> um, all right. On this one, we read in this chapter in your notes, the result of the crucifixion and resurrection of Israel's future Savior is stated. We see his... Uh, atonement him, him being offered up as an offering for sin and guilt in 53 his crucifixion and then his resurrection beginning in verse 10 so now because of that crucifixion and resurrection because the sins have been taken care of uh, we see the result and in your notes the sins are atoned for now they will have worldwide dominion. The people of God have been cleansed. Heaven has been cleansed. Now we will have worldwide dominion. And Derek Kidner states, this chapter's exuberance, peace, and security spring from a declaration, from the declaration and death just described which at 52.13 cut across the description of the great homecoming. In Christian terms, the Calvary of chapter 53 is followed by the growing church of chapter 54 and then the gospel call that we'll look at in chapter 55. So 53 is the atoning sacrifice. 54 is the expansion of the kingdom. And 55 is the gospel call. So that gives you a good context of where we are right now. Can and you, <clears throat> Go ahead. Could you expand a little more on this part in verse 1 about sons of the desolate will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman? What does that mean? We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's quoted in the New Testament. We'll get there in just a minute. Okay. I'll offer you the best best I can do <laughs> somebody else may help me out on that alright concerning the exuberance shown at the beginning of this chapter Raymond Ortland states the test of a church's faith is not only 
the wording of its creed, but also the gladness in its worship. Notice that the gladness in response to what Jesus has done for these people, how glad they are, how joyous they are. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. So God's people should be joyful when when uh, we go in there in the sanctuary, we need to be sure we're making a joyful noise unto the Lord and be glad because of the redemption we have. I mean, we're not going to hell forever. So that should make us all glad. That's what we all deserve. But we don't get that. We get salvation through Christ and we need to rejoice when we go into the sanctuary and worship our Savior God. So in your notes it says, it is now time to rejoice. The Savior has done his work. He has sent his spirit into the world. The formerly barren church will now bear fruit. And so this gets, we're getting into the part that Mike was asking about. Uh, Christ now sees his seed and is satisfied referring back to 53, 10, and 11. He will see his seed and be satisfied. And Paul quotes this in Galatians 4, 27. And this refers to the seed of the woman. The true church, it will consist of many. Now, throughout the history of the church, uh, God has dealt with desolate women. He dealt with Sarah. Uh, he, he dealt with uh, Rebecca. And of course, uh, he dealt with the uh, um, Samuel's mother. What was Samuel? Hannah. He dealt thus with Hannah. And in the New Testament, he's going to deal thus with um, Elizabeth, the mother of John the prophet. So we have the desolate ones will actually be the ones that will be numerous. Uh, God, God doesn't do things the way we, want, we expect him to do it. <laughs> um, we have barren women all throughout the scriptures that turn out to be the dominant ones. And of course, Mary, uh, <clears throat> Mary hadn't even had a husband. And uh, she bore Jesus. So when we look at 427 of Galatians, uh, he's talking about Hagar being Mount Sinai and uh, which is Arabia, and then Sarah being Jerusalem. Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, and break forth and cry aloud, and you are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those that of a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. This is just another one of those obvious post-millennial expressions. 
Okay. All right, we're told in verse 2, it says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen our cords and strengthen your stakes. And so um, we are, in verse 2, told to get ready to expand. The church is to get ready to expand, and the reason is because they will expand, according to verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. All right, we're going to have some people look up stuff, beginning over here with Owen. We're just going to go straight down the line. Skipping Dana. She's already done it. Genesis 1.28, Owen. Genesis 9.1, Mike. I mean, excuse me, Jill. Jill, 9.1. Mike, 12, 1 through 3. Bud, Psalm 72, 8 through 11. And Melissa, uh, Michelle, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I'll tell you, tell you all when to read. <clears throat> they are to get ready to expand, and the reason is they will expand. They will eventually have worldwide dominion. And the same thought was also in 49, 19 through 20. This is what always had this is what has always been intended for God's people. It's always been intended for God's people to have worldwide dominion. Um, let's have Genesis 1:28 read. And God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay. So here we have what's called the dominion mandate given to Adam when he was created. Part of being the image of God is to have that dominion over the earth. God had dominion over the whole earth. He said, Let there be, and it was. So part of man's being created the image of God, he, part of his image is to have dominion over the earth under God who originally and always has dominion over the earth. And it's never been rescinded. Let's go to uh, Genesis 9.1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right, so we, after the flood, the new, we have a new creation now. We had the flood wiping out the world. And the same genre of words is spoken there to Noah. Out of the 12, 1 through 3 of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So um, Abraham and his seed has some work to do. Okay. Um, Psalm 72, 8 through 11 may have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lift the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Okay. So we see evidently he is to have dominion from sea to sea. All right, and Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I think we all know this, but a little bit refresher is not going to hurt anything. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, in your notes, God's people have always had a dominion mandate and it has never been rescinded. Ken Gentry, I think y'all know him, uh, he wrote a book called He Shall Have Dominion. The title was taken out of um, Psalm 72 that uh, Bud read us. And I just want to read you a short little part out of this. He says, the optimistic expectations of postmillennialism comport well with God's creational purpose as evidenced in the cultural mandate. They highlight the divine expectation of the true created nature of man qua man. Postmillennialism expects the world as a system, parentheses, cosmos, to be brought under the submission to God's rule by the active, sanctified agency of redeemed man who has been renewed in the image of God. In other words, postmillennialism eschatology expects in history what God originally intended for history. He sees his plan as maintained and moving forward toward its original goal. But now on the new basis of God's sovereign and gracious redemption, which we've just had Isaiah 53. Uh, there's a guy named Hanko that doesn't believe in this. He says, Hanko's objection to postmillennialism's employment of the cultural mandate is rooted in a very deep sense of genuine, fearsome power of sin. He says, sin's too powerful. We'll never have dominion over the earth. Gentry says, the postmillennialist, however, sees God's continuance of the cultural mandate, but upon a new principle, the very real and even greater power of redemption in Christ. And that's why right after we had the atonement, and now we have the power of Christ, and he sends his spirit into the world, he expects the church to expand. And one other little short thing from Gentry here. Uh, he says, thus we have at the very inception of prophecy the certainty, certainty of victory. Just as the fall of Adam had a worldwide negative effect, so does the salvation of God on the basis of the resurrection of Christ, the last Adam, have a worldwide positive effect. The crushing of Satan is not awaiting a consummative victory of Christ over Satan at the end of history. The idea is that Satan, the destroyer, his nefarious kingdom and its evil effects are overwhelmed progressively 
by the superior strength and glory of Almighty God, the Creator, through Jesus Christ. So God expects His church to expand. He does not expect us to believe that we're going to lose in history. Okay, anybody have anything to add to that? There was a picture somewhere the other day, I don't know if it was on the internet, it might have been in the paper, about some of the great churches, the, the attendance is just down to, you know, some of them are closing because of attendance. And I think we can see that around this part of the country. Probably not as many through here as it would be in, say, California or New York or somewhere, but uh, a lot of the people are not attending church like they did at one time. So it makes you makes you think we got something to look forward to. They'll build back up. The church will survive. Yeah. Yep. Go through good times and bad times. Yeah. The church has always gone through good times and bad times. Yeah. I mean, we're a lot further off than we were further along than we were a thousand years ago. The degree to which we give up um, dominion and regency now is the degree to which our children and the next generation beyond will have lost. Yeah. It's so important. I mean, your view of the history is so important on what we teach our children, the way we live. I mean, we have, we have work to do. Gary North kept saying, we've got work to do. Don't just sit back. We've got work to do. We've got dominion work. Adam failed. We won't fail because Christ has atoned for our sins. All right, good. All right, verses 4 through 10. Charles, will you read that for us, please? 54, 4 through 10? That's correct. It's from the ESV. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Your maker is your husband. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Okay, things are going to be so good, that's your blank there, so good that God's people will forget the bad days that will be behind them. Their idolatry and consequent exile has caused shame, but there will be no more shame, according to verse 4. Almighty God is her husband. He is able and willing to redeem them and make them great, according to verse 5. And he has called them and married them, according to verse 6. That was just read to us. 
and he has briefly justly deserted them because of their sin. Verse 7. Verse 8, he again had compassion upon them. And in verse 9 and 10, he promises never again to desert them. And he didn't desert them. They deserted him. And so in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, we see that he takes a new wife. All right, now, in verse 10, I want to look at this for just a minute, this covenant of peace. He says in the second part of the verse, My steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Remember that verse, and then remember verse 9. The days of Noah, remember, he destroyed the earth. But now we see in verse 10 a covenant of peace. Now, this covenant of peace um, in your notes, uh, spoken of here, seems to be the new covenant. And there are a few verses there that would describe that. Um, Of course, Paul says that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the new covenant is a covenant of peace. Because of what Christ has done for us, in chapter 53, we have peace. And it even says the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. So that that is right. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, though. All right. In your notes there, it says, Furthermore, the priesthood of the church is emphasized. All right. Let's see, Elaine, I believe you're next back there. Will you look up for us Numbers 25? Never mind. I want to read that. Numbers 25. 6 through 13. Let's all turn to Numbers. We don't too often read much in Numbers, but this is an extremely important passage for us. 25, beginning in verse 6. Through 13. Now, Israel is in the middle of a bunch of Baal worshippers, and they're taking them as their spouses, or at least as their <clears throat> sexual mates. And we read in verse 6 And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of their tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman threw her belly. In other words, they were fornicating and he killed them both while they were doing it. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Now notice, God was going to consume every single one of them. But Phineas held that back by killing those two people. And then he says, Therefore, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him in the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his people and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now I want to read to you a real short passage out of the book of Revelation. Chapter 5. They sang a new song. These are the martyrs in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and your blood has ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. <coughs> All right. So now we see that Phineas in his priesthood saved the total destruction of the people. And he was given the covenant of peace by God. Now in verse 9, God talks about in the days of Noah, he destroyed everybody on earth except for one family. Now the idea of a priest here seems to be that they protect the people of God even uh, from, they protect the world from God totally destroying the world. That's, you have that idea. I want to read to you out of this book, the New American Commentary of Numbers, by just a short passage by Dennis Cole on this covenant of peace. By virtue of Phineas's priestly role in being a mediator between God and man, the covenant of peace extended well beyond him and his priestly descendants. It included the entire nation that survived the plague. Now in the third generation of the lineage of Aaron, the first high priest, the priesthood is confirmed as everlasting. Phineas demonstrated through his defense of the sanctum that he was a worthy mediator between God and man in the Israelite cult. So Phineas stopped the destruction of people when he interceded for them because of what he did. <clears throat> now, I want to tell you something. I want, to, I want to put this forward to you just for comment. There was an apologist father in the second century. He lived from 100 to 165, roughly. His name was Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr wrote first apology, second apology, and what? Wrong. <laughs> and dialogue, dialogue with Trifo the Jew. That, that was his three big works. He was an apologist. He defended the Christian faith. He said that Christians were good citizens. He, he wrote these to the emperor of Rome. 
Antonius Pius. They argue that Christians are good citizens, they're not atheists, they're not cannibals, they're not incestuous people, and he also affirmed the intellectual coherence of Christianity. Now, his second apology to defend Christianity um, came before Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was also a philosopher and a very good philosopher. Now, Aurelius wanted to wipe him out, but he makes... He wrote a second apology to him. And he didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. <laughs> and you will see why. And um, his argument to Aurelius, why you better be nice to the Christians, is because it is only for the sake of Christians that God refrains from bringing ruin on the world. God would wipe the world out if it wasn't for Christians. He didn't particularly like that. So, I'm going to read you, I've got a copy of the source document here, and I just want to read to you a part of it here, if I can find it. This is from his second apology, uh, chapter 7. The title of it is, The World Preserved for the Sake of Christian Man's Responsibility. He says, wherefore, God delays causing the confusion and destruction of the whole world by which the wicked angels and demons and men shall cease to exist because of the seed of the Christians who know that they are the cause of the perseverance of nature. He makes his apology that Christians should be left alone with Aurelius. If you wipe Christians out, the world will be destroyed. Does this seem to fit in with you with the covenant of peace with Phineas? I myself think that he was on to something here. I think he was right. We don't ever hear that anymore. Should we be telling non-Christians that the one for us, God would destroy the world? Which I believe, I believe he would. So here's a man writing in 165 at the latest. He had picked up on this and you never hear about this anymore in the church. So I think that's what the covenant of peace has to do with. God does not destroy the whole world simply because he has a priesthood here on earth right now, which is us. Anybody have any comments or disagreement on that? Well, that would be uh, consistent with the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Even though the number got down real low, he would have been willing to say if there had been Christians there. Absolutely. He says, if you have, I think he whittled it down. And if there's five righteous men in Sodom, you wouldn't destroy it, would you, God? <clears throat> he says, no, I wouldn't. So the Christians, non-Christians don't realize this, but the only reason God doesn't wipe them out right now is because of us. The covenant of peace. All right, if nobody else has anything, I'll ask him if he'll close us in prayer, please. Thank you.